the book of Romans, chapter 14. The Apostle Paul, as he pens this epistle, uh, knows there is a problem, potential problem, festering in the church at Rome. He's never been there, but he has obviously heard something of what is transpiring there. He has undoubtedly witnessed something similar in other churches, and he has been made aware of the fact that, yes, there is a problem festering in the church at Rome. The problem hinges on a word. Right at the end of verse 1 in chapter 14, opinions. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. The New International Version translates the expression disputable matters. The good old King James Version translates it as follows. Doubtful disputations. Pick whichever one you like. Doubtful disputations, disputable matters, opinions. What exactly does he have in mind? He gives us four examples of it in the text. Let me just point these out quickly. Example number one, verse two. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. There is disputable matter number one. Over here, believers, Christians, who will eat only vegetables. Over here, Christians who will eat gladfully, joyfully meat. Why? What's the issue? I think Paul shed some light on it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Simply this, all meat was sacrificed at some point. Whenever an animal was butchered, it was offered to some god, the pantheon of gods in the Roman Empire. I mean, there's just a plethora of gods. And so whenever a sheep, a bullock, a goat, whatever was slaughtered, it was offered, the blood was poured out to something. And so some Christians, very uncomfortable with that. And so they will eat only vegetables. Other Christians, who cares? They're all false gods, idolatry, have nothing to do with it anyway, and they eat, no problem. There's disputable matter number one. A second example is found in verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And so you are aware of the fact that our word holiday comes from two words, holy day, holy day. And just as in the church calendar, historically, there were a number of holy days, so too, even back then, especially in a Jewish context, there were any number of festival days. And so you have over here group number one, they think it's necessary to observe these holy days, these festival days. And then you have group number two over here and says, well, that no longer pertains to us. It's completely irrelevant. I'm not observing any of it. The third example is found in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. 
And so there, the Apostle Paul seems to have the Old Testament dietary laws in view, that great segment of the ceremonial law whereby certain animals, well, you could eat them, other animals, you had to stay away from them, clean and unclean. And so some in the church at Rome, some Christians still think, well, there must be some value to that. Therefore, I'm going to observe those commandments. Whereas other Christians have had a Peter-like experience and understand, well, I'm free to eat anything I like now. Haggis, blood pudding, no problem. Whatever I want. Those dietary laws no longer apply. There's a fourth example. It's found in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine. So there's the fourth. You have some Christians over here who will not drink and you have Christians over here who have absolutely no problem drinking. Four examples of what Paul means back in verse 1. Opinions. Disputable matters. Doubtful disputations. He divides these two groups wherever they fall. Group 1 over here he describes as weak. You have them right there in the first verse. As for the one who is weak in faith. This group over here, he describes conversely in chapter 15, verse 1, as strong. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. So there you have it. Two groups, weak in faith, strong in faith. That is insofar as their understanding of Scripture is concerned and what they have identified as important, fundamental, pivotal to the Christian faith and the pursuit of piety, spirituality, godliness. And the lines are drawn. You have group number one over here. You have group number two over here. And Paul is aware of the fact that unless this is addressed, Unless this problem is rectified, one of two things is going to happen. First possibility is this. There's going to be a cold war. A cold war in the church at Rome. This group will align itself, develop its arguments and counter-arguments. This group will align itself, buttress its position, with, reinforce its position, fortify its position with arguments, counter-arguments. Each will identify their individual segments, spheres of influence in the church. They will have nothing to do with each other, and they will just sort of agree to get along, and there will be this indefinite cold war. Second possibility, far more likely, and certainly the history of the church bears it out, uh, civil war. They will simply let loose and tear each other apart and down with the church at Rome. Paul knows it's a potential problem. It is a problem that is festering. And so he addresses it beginning again, you know it, chapter 14, verse 1, and stays with it, will not let go of it, really until the end of verse 13 into the 15th chapter. The text has direct application and bearing on us today. Opinions, disputable matters, Doubtful disputations, I'm defining them as follows for us, matters of conscience to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively, but matters of conscience about which we make a decision, matters of conscience concerning which we assume a position, 
Matters of conscience concerning which we are convinced in our own minds and think we are right, and yet find ourselves in a church fellowship with many people who don't agree with us. And these opinions, these matters of conscience, again, please understand them. I've defined them carefully. More on this later. Matters of conscience to which the Bible does not speak directly or definitively fall into this category of opinions, disputable matters, doubtful disputations. Direct application for us. I must say, I'm going to say, by way of personal testimony, the book of Romans is my favorite book in the Bible. You know that by now, right? I haven't tried to hide that from anyone. Favorite book in the Bible. There are portions of this book that God has used at different junctures in my life. All right? Romans chapter 1 for me is sublime. Not the latter part, the former part, when he is explaining, basically laying down a Christian paradigm for knowledge. Very important for apologetics. Very important for answering all philosophical questions. Chapter 5. I can revel in chapter 5 every day of my life. The great doctrine of justification, this grace upon which we stand. Oh, what, what encouragement. Uh, what medicine, if you like, for a troubled heart? Romans 8. Can you think of Romans and not think of chapter 8? And just how precious that is to see ourselves as adopted children in the family of God and understand that this sovereign God is controlling all things for our good. Chapter 9. No way I can skip it. Paradigm shifting in terms of my understanding of who God is and coming terms to the fact that really this isn't about me. It is about God. And it is about a sovereign God working out his will however he chooses, however he pleases in the best interest of his glory among men and, men and women. And chapter 14. Chapter 14 has been a very important chapter for me. It pains me to say it uh, for the following reason. It was a very necessary corrective at a particular point, juncture in my life. As a matter of fact, it's difficult for me to read it even now and preach on it because I get embarrassed. I get embarrassed when I think back. I get embarrassed about some of the battles I chose to fight. I, got, I get embarrassed about some of the casualties I caused, some of the damage I inflicted. And I'll tell you, I just have to, I have to at times just, no, I'm not going to go there or think about it. I, still, I know the blood of Christ cleanses all sin. I know that. But it is something that still produces a measure of discomfort in me as I think back. And so I come to this text. I come to it fresh, looking at it with fresh eyes. I come at it with fresh anticipation. And I come at it as well with the painful realization that God used it to penetrate deep within, between bone, marrow, fiber, right deep within. At one point in my life when I tended to major on minors, was prepared to die on just about any hill, and viewed these opinions, matters of conscience, to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively, as marks of spirituality. 
that I was to defend at all costs and tear down others at all costs. I confess that publicly. I've confessed it many times before the Lord. And I know, therefore, the relevance of this passage. Not only personally, I know the relevance of this passage in ecclesiastical context. The things I have seen in the context of a local church, the things I have heard, the divisions I have witnessed, and the downright animosity that has risen to the surface at times, more often than not, given voice, given expression in the context of these very things that Paul is speaking against. So I'm aware of it pastorally. And I'm under no illusions. Here we are, Grace Community Church. What are we, in our 16th year, 17th year? Something like that, somewhere around there. And by God's grace, there has been a measure of unity ever since the church's inception. But I, I, I am under no illusion that that sense of unity can evaporate in an instant. Never take it for I never take it for granted. Here today, gone tomorrow, that unity can dissipate like the... the, the the morning-filled mist when the sun comes out and it disappears. That unity can be here one moment, gone the next. And so how important it is for us to work through these things, especially during seasons of unity, especially during seasons of blessing, to be clear on these things in our thinking and to make sure we are following through on them in our personal application. So all of that by way of introduction to reinforce, to impress upon you, if you're not impressed already, of the extreme significance of this text, not just for the Church of Rome, for the church since its inception, and for Grace Community Church today. He gives three remedies. He's identified the problem. Remedy number one, first 12 verses of chapter 14. Remedy number two, verse 13, through the end of chapter 14. Remedy number three, First four verses of chapter 15, and then he gives a heartfelt, earnest, pastoral appeal to this church to do all that is within its power to pursue God's glory by preserving harmony in the midst of the church. Today, we're biting off the first one, remedy number one. And so follow along as I read the first 12 verses of chapter 14 for us. For us. Please hear the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. 
If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So there you have it. Remedy number one. It's summed up a statement right in the middle of verse one. Do you see it? Welcome him. It's built upon, when you get into the third verse, let not the one who eats, so let not the strong despise the one who abstains, the weak, and conversely, let not the one who abstains, the weak, pass judgment on the one who eats. So there is remedy number one. Welcome. Do not, do not judge your brother, but welcome him. There it is. He explains exactly what he means by that, basically by giving three reasons. So there's the commandment, and please take note of this. It is a commandment of the Lord. Right? Are we clear on that? Do not judge, but welcome and he supports it. He builds it up by giving three reasons why I should obey this commandment. Remedy number one. Here is the first reason for this commandment. God has welcomed my brother. Look at what we read in the latter part of verse three. Well, right from the outset. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Note the conjunction for. Because. Here's the reason. Reason number one. God has welcomed him. It's beautiful. We could explain it in so many ways. I believe one of the most powerful is to just take a quick trip back to chapter 8. And to think in terms of verses 29 and 30 and what we call the golden chain of salvation. Uh, God foreknew us, right? That transpires in eternity. Prior to creation, he knows those who are his own. It is the doctrine of election. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. He predestined them to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Those whom he predestined, now we enter time, he justified. We believed in the Lord Jesus and we were justified in the sight of God. Those whom, he, those whom he called, rather, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And so there you have these five links in this chain. Election, predestination, calling, effectual calling by the Holy Spirit, justification and glorification. What I can't think of a more beautiful gripping picture of what it means for God to welcome his people than that great demonstration of sovereign grace. 
That he always has his people in view in Christ Jesus. He chooses them in Christ. He predestines them in Christ. He justifies them in Christ. He sanctifies them in Christ. And he will glorify them in Christ. And so when I think of my brother, that individual with whom I disagree over some of these sticky issues, disputable matters, doubtful disputations. I now know what is expected of me. I now know what my duty is. I am not to judge him. I am to welcome him. And I, am to, I now know precisely why. It is because God has welcomed him. And who am I to do any different? Who am I to make my set of opinions who am I to make my established disputable matters the criteria upon which I welcome one whom God has already welcomed? That brother is as loved, accepted, cherished, and welcomed as I am. And I am as loved, accepted, cherished, and welcomed as he is. Paul's point is this, I dare not make my acceptance of him, my brother, contingent on how he scores on my list of opinions. If I do, I am in flagrant violation of this commandment. I am guilty of disobedience. Do not judge. You are to welcome he gives a second reason why we are not to judge but welcome. It's this. God has redeemed my brother. He starts it off really with a question in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And he stays with, with this thought right through to the end of verse 9. Let me sum it up in five statements. The content of these verses and Paul's primary point. Here it is. He's establishing point number one. That my brother has a master. I need to understand this. My brother has a master. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. That's his first point. He's going to build. My brother has a master. Here's the second point. My brother will stand before his master, will stand and will be upheld. On the judgment day. You get that right at the end of verse 4. He will be upheld for the Lord. He will be accepted for the Lord is able to make him stand. He builds. The third point is this. My brother, I need to understand this, is fully convinced in his own mind as to his opinions before his master. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. I need to understand that. My brother has a master. It's not me, surprise of surprises. He has a master. And uh, that master will uphold him and accept him in the judgment day. And I need to understand that my brother has worked through these issues, these things. He is convinced in his own mind as to these matters of conscience. Building on that, I need to understand and recognize that my brother is motivated by a desire to honor God. Verse 6. This is, this is a great verse. The one who observes the day observes it, why? In honor of the Lord. 
You got that? The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That right there is transformational. What's Paul's point? He says, look, it really doesn't make any difference. Weak, strong, they're both driven by the same thing. And we must understand this. They both, firstly, he makes clear, they act in faith. Secondly, they act from gratitude. And thirdly, they act for God's glory. My brother is fully convinced concerning his position on these matters. He is acting in faith before his master. He is acting from thanksgiving before his master. And he is acting for his master's honor. He is doing that as much as I am doing that. The strong is doing that as much as the weak. The weak as much as the strong. It doesn't matter where you fall on the issue. Paul is lumping them all together. The individual is driven by the same thing before his master. And then the fifth point he makes is simply this, reinforcing it all really. My brother lives for God because he belongs to God. Verse 7, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, redemption, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And so I am compelled. Again, this is remedy number one. I am compelled to, not to judge, but to welcome. And I am compelled, why? Because God has welcomed my brother and God has redeemed my brother. And now thirdly, God will judge my brother. Verse 10, he begins it with a question. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? Notice the twofold question harkens back to the distinction he introduced in verse 3. He knows that the strong will be tempted to despise the weak. The weak will be tempted to judge the strong. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For, so here's the reason, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. I want you to notice one little word in each of those verses. In verse 10, I want you to notice the word all. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. In verse 11, I want you to notice the word every. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And in verse 12, I want you to notice the little word each. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. What is Paul's point? It's twofold. And the second terrifies me, so I'll begin with number one. I think his first point is simply this. Okay, God has welcomed him. God has redeemed him. And God will judge him. He is simply reinforcing the master-servant relationship and pointing out the simple fact that my brother, insofar as these opinions, these disputable matters are concerned, 
Well, he's answerable to God. He will stand before God. He's never going to stand before me. His knee isn't going to bow to me. He's not going to give an account to me. He has a master. Therefore, that issue is between that servant and that master. I think that's his first point here. I think the second point, as I said, is far more terrifying. I think it's simply this. I understand that a day is coming when I, me, I, verse 10, will stand. I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Terrifies me. Sort of. I will stand before the judgment seat of God. The day will come when my knee, I will bow my knees before God. And the day will come, verse 12, when I, I will give an account of myself to God. You mean we're going to be judged? Of course we're going to be judged. One of the great misgivings plaguing evangelicalism today. Of course we're going to be judged. Of course we're going to stand before the throne. And our lives, oh it terrifies me, I get embarrassed right now you're thinking about it, will be an open book. Every deed, every word, every thought. And I will be judged on the basis of my Works. Oh, you, you, I know you're hoping I'm going somewhere with this. I am going somewhere with this. And you've heard me say it before. This shouldn't be new to most of us. Obedience is necessary for salvation. Is it not? Obedience is necessary for salvation. Obedience is not necessary as the meritorious cause of salvation. Clear? It is necessary as the demonstrable Evidence of salvation. We will be judged on the basis of our works because our works will testify, however imperfect, they will testify to what? The new birth. They will be a confirmation of what? The grace of God operative in me. There will be no merit in these works. Because these works are those which God prepared beforehand, says Paul in Ephesians 2, that we should walk in them. These are works that Christ, my master himself, is working out through me by the Holy Spirit. And these works will be laid bare. And these works will testify to the reality of the new birth. And I will be judged on the basis of my works, but not in terms of the meritorious cause. That's God's grace and God's grace alone. Praise God. And so with every confidence, I can face that day knowing I will stand there and I will be accepted because of the grace of God. But there will be works put on display. It amazes me because at times I have no clue what they'll be. I sure hope there's something, but I have this confidence there will be. There will be these works that testify to the grace of God operative in me. I think Paul's point is this. Look, if you get there on that day, and the books are opened. And all that comes forth is the fact that when it comes to my brothers and sisters in Christ, I have consistently been judgmental, contemptuous, unmerciful, and uncharitable. It will prove what? 
I'm a fake and I was never born again. I think that's his point. Ooh, he's hitting us between the eyes, isn't he? The reality of grace in action. The reality of a transformed life. Grace is transformational. Grace is operative. And Paul's point is this. Look, you need to understand something. We're all going to stand there. We're all going to stand there. And our works will be put on display. Oh, we will stand in Christ and in Christ alone. And so thankful that, yes, we are justified in the sight of God. And it's Christ's works upon which we stand. It is Christ's works, Christ's obedience, Christ's righteousness that is reckoned to us. And God will pass sentence, yes, on the basis of Christ's work. But understand this. That the life touched by the grace of God will then issue forth in works which will confirm that saving work. And if I arrive there on that day and my entire life has been contrary to the grace of God, and in this context, again, let me repeat it, my attitude toward my fellow brethren, day after day, time after time, completely opposite to this text, and I have been marked by a judgmental contemptuous, unmerciful, uncharitable spirit, that that has been my disposition. That has been my daily walk. That is, in a nutshell, who I am. Boy, I better think again. I better think again as to the reality of my standing in the sight of God. Terrifies me. It's sobering, isn't it? Oh, it's sobering. On the one hand, oh, it is such a cry of confidence. When we think of that day and we think of our standing in the Lord Jesus Christ and understand that outside of Christ, our works are filthy rags. In Christ, our works are actually made, however imperfect they are in and of themselves, very pleasing to our Heavenly Father. And it is all going to be laid bare on that day. That's reason number three for what? Obeying the command, which is what? Do not judge But welcome. Here it is, summed up as follows, these three reasons when we pack them all together. Christ died to be our Savior. Christ rose to be our Lord. Christ is coming to be our judge. We belong to Christ. Therefore, matters of conscience are between us and him. Matters of conscience are between me and my Savior, my Lord, and my judge. My duty is to welcome others. That is Paul's principal point argument in the first half of chapter 14. Let me draw out three inferences, three lessons which I think are extremely important in addition to the principal lesson that we've considered and laid bare before us. Three incidental lessons, important in their own right, and important we be clear on these. Here's lesson number one that I take home from these verses. I need to be very careful how I apply this text. I need to be very careful how I apply it. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? I need to be careful how I apply this. Why? Because the natural man, 
uh, would like to abuse this text. The natural man would like to misuse this text. Uh, Some will twist, and some do twist these verses in order to justify living however they please. Right? Uh, It doesn't matter what I believe doctrinally. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how I live morally. And my friend, you dare not tell me otherwise. Because this text tells you not to judge me. That is an abuse of the text. That is not what the Apostle Paul is saying. We are, as the church, called to judge when it comes to doctrine. Paul, at no point in those first 11 chapters in which he expounds the gospel, at no point would he have inserted the thought, well, look, this is a matter of opinion. It doesn't really matter where you land on this. Just get along. He would never have said that. When doctrine is at stake, when the foundation is threatened, the Apostle Paul is very clear. Scripture is very clear. We are called to judge. You read, for example, his epistle to the Galatians. Now, the church at Galatia, they were in danger of what? Destroying the foundation. Some were actually suggesting that circumcision was necessary for salvation. Paul does not write to that church and say, well, look, this is a disputable matter. Some of you think it's necessary. Some of you think it's unnecessary. Well, you just need to stop judging each other and get along. No, when the foundation is threatened, when doctrine is the issue, when the gospel is at stake, we are called to judge. And we dare not use this text, we dare not abuse Matthew 7 verse 1 to to legitimize anyone believing anything. Well, I believe this about the Trinity. Well, I believe this about the relationship between grace and works. Well, I believe this on the doctrine of election. I believe this, 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 and the next thing. And you just need to accept me. No, we are called to judge in the light of Scripture. Secondly, we dare not abuse this text when it comes to moral behavior. Uh, What do you think on this? Just read Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, the first one. There's a whole lot of nonsense going on at the church at Corinth. Terrible immorality. Paul doesn't write to that church, well, you know, some of you think that's kind of wrong. Some of you aren't so sure. Well, weak, strong, group one, group two, group A, group B. Well, you just kind of need to accept your differences and get along. No, what's Paul's stand? I've judged that person already. And now I expect you to cast him out from your midst. When it comes to moral issues, issues pertaining to behavior, issues pertaining to morality, the church is actually called to judge. You want further confirmation of this? Read. It's an interesting read. You read 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and there are at least five, possibly six, distinct instances in which Paul calls on the church to judge. We are commanded at times to judge. I know it just runs so contrary to what we hear. Don't judge me. We are called to judge. We are called to judge when it comes to doctrine. We are called to judge when it comes to behavior. Paul has neither of those in view in Romans chapter 14. He is talking about disputable matters. He's referring to matters of conscience, 
to which the Bible doesn't speak directly or definitively. I need to be very careful. I don't take this text, verses, phrases, rip them out of context to justify doing whatever I want to do or believing whatever I want to believe. Second lesson is this. I need, I must pursue a God-centered way of thinking and living. That really leaps off the page. I need to pursue a God-centered way of thinking and living. Again, I'm returning to verse 6. This one is crucial to the text. Notice again the comparison. You've got over here, to my left, your right. The one who observes the day, observes it, why? In honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Now over here, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, he is indicating what? That we must be driven in the decisions and the positions we take concerning these opinions. We must be driven by what? To act in faith. To act from thanksgiving and to act for God's glory. That teaches me what? I need to pursue in my life. We need to pursue as a church. A God-centered way of thinking and living. Do I act in faith? When I make my decisions and when I do what I do or don't do what I don't do, do I act in faith? What does that mean? He's told us back in verse 2 of chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern. And so I'm so saturated in the Word of God that the Word of God is now shaping my thinking and I'm able to discern even in situations and circumstances what is the will of God on this? How does God's will, God's law, God's Word apply to this? And I'm able to discern what is good and acceptable and perfect. Therefore, I know I'm acting in faith. Am I acting? Do I act from gratitude? Well, what does that look like? It's verse 1 of chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so I want to be a worshiper. And I understand that how I live is the main principal way in which I worship. I offer up my life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And I'm motivated to do this. Why? You know it earlier in the verse. Because of the mercies of God. And so I act in faith. I act from gratitude, and I act for God's glory. What does that mean? Oh, back into the 11th chapter. Seems so long ago now, doesn't it? Look at the final verse, verse 36. For from Him, from God, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And so I am motivated to live as I arrive, as I am convinced in my own mind concerning these matters of conscience, opinions, disputable matters, to ask these three questions. Do I act in faith? Do I act from gratitude? Do I act for God's glory? I need to pursue a God-centered way of thinking and living. Packer. J.I. Packer is very helpful in this regard. Listen to what he has to say. Every Christian's life purpose must be to glorify God. That's why we're here, folks. 
to glorify God. That's it. That's the answer to every question. Every Christian's life purpose must be to glorify God. Everything we say and do, all our obedience to God's commands, all our relationships with others, all the use we make of gifts, talents, and opportunities that God gives us, all our enduring of adverse situations and human hostility must be so managed as to give God honor, as to give God glory. Every Christian's full-time employment must be to please God. Pleasing God in everything must be our goal. I learned that from the sixth verse. And it forces me to ask and answer and wrestle with, again, those three pivotal questions. Am I acting in faith? Am I acting from gratitude? Am I acting for the glory of God? Third lesson with which I want to conclude is this. I need to nurture. I need to nurture a joy-inducing appreciation of my identity in Christ. I need to nurture a joy-inducing, joy-cultivating, nurturing appreciation of my identity in Christ. Paul paints a beautiful portrait of that identity in this text, notice three things, three parts to this identity. Number one, he purchased me. Again, the ninth verse. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, Master, both of the dead and of the living. He purchased me. Notice, secondly, he welcomed me. Right back at the end of verse 3, God has welcomed him. When I hear those words, I think of the parable of the prodigal son, right? And I think of that young man away wallowing with the swine and the muck and the mire and all that he got up to. And I think of him, we read in the text, coming to his senses and reasoning to himself, well, I'll, I'll return to my father and I'll ask him to make me a servant in his house, Right? That's the best I could hope for. And that prodigal returns home. And when the father sees the prodigal approaching home, he runs to him. He lavishes everything he has upon him. A servant? No, my son. And he welcomes him back into the family. Oh, the realization that he has purchased me. With the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has welcomed me. Please understand, he has welcomed me. No conditions necessary. He has just welcomed me. As I have turned and believed in the Lord Jesus. And the third part to this identity in Christ is this. He will uphold me. Right at the end of verse 4. He will be upheld. He will be preserved. He will be protected. He will be guarded. He will be kept. He will be welcomed as he's already been welcomed. He'll be welcomed again on that day for the Lord. The Lord is able to make him stand. Oh, Christian, please revel in your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friend, if you are not a Christian, Please understand what you are missing out on. 
please understand that outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing but the certain expectation of judgment and condemnation. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who believe in him. No condemnation for those who have received the Son. No condemnation who recognize their works don't add up to anything. But they are resting entirely upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, with this, let me conclude. It's the words of an old reformer. And it's my invitation to us this day. Our whole salvation is in Christ. If we seek redemption, it is found in Christ's passion. If we seek forgiveness, it is found in Christ's condemnation. If we seek remission, it is found in Christ's sacrifice. If we seek purification, it is found in Christ's blood. If we seek reconciliation, it is found in Christ's suffering. If we seek newness of life, it is found in Christ's resurrection. Let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. Oh, my identity in Christ. God purchased me in Christ. He welcomed me lavishly in Christ. And he will uphold me for that day yet future in Christ. With this, let us bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do ascribe to you all the glory and honor and praise this day, for you are a God who abounds in wonderful works, a God who abounds in mighty deeds, chief among them, the salvation of sinners in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We lift up his name this day. We exalt the name of Christ above every name. We bow the knee even now before him, claiming him as our Savior and our Lord and our Master. And we pray for illumination to understand all that we've considered this morning. And we pray for conversion and salvation for the unbeliever, the lost soul in our midst, that you might be merciful. And that by the powerful working of the Spirit of God, you might call him, call her to salvation. Salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen.